Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Nancy Hensley, who is the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Product Officer of Stats Perform. Nancy, why don't you start us off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Uh, Prior to Stats Perform, which I joined about six months ago, right before COVID, I was uh, 20 years at IBM in a combination of kind of bouncing between product and marketing and and technical field. And prior to that, I was doing a similar role in product at McDonald's Corporation. So talk to me about how you got into product. (laughs) So I, um, when I first started at IBM, I was in the field and I worked my way into the technical sales side of the field. And of course, I always joke around that I got into product because I always had an opinion on product. And I would always like take a lot of our experiences with the product and bring them forward to the product team. Like we need to focus on this and we need to focus on that. And I, I had not just the technical team, but I also had the benchmark team too. So to me, I really understood the true experience of the products from working in and the, on the benchmark side of things. And of course, once you have so many opinions about a product, somebody thinks it's a really good idea for you to move into product. And I got to tell you, I initially resisted that, but I eventually, you know, developed that passion for taking that experience and bringing it forward. And that's what really laid the foundation for me being so user experience focused in product. That's awesome. So before we get into IBM, and we'll jump back into it, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now at Stats Perform, what problems you're solving, you know, the the intriguing problems that you run into there. So Stats Perform, we basically have a couple different aspects to our business. So one is we are a trusted data collection and supplier of sports data. So for example, when you ask uh, Siri or Alexa, the score, that's likely us powering some of that backend knowledge for several of the big tech companies that serve up the data in various ways, whether it's through a voice system or through search, for example. We also collect the data for teams and leagues and provide all types of ways that they can do analysis and recruitment with some of our tools that we provide on top of that data. And we, we are great storytellers. We have a, a news and editorial background. We were once owned by Fox News and we still have that heritage. And I think that combination of data, storytelling, the passion about sports, the depth of the data that we have, and then also we have a, a betting business as well where we supply that data and analytics and capabilities uh, as well as streaming probably, oh gosh, probably 27,000 events for our betting partners as well. So lots of, lots of things that we're doing around sports, but mostly revolving around the data and the analytics behind it. Sounds really interesting. And, and we're just about to jump into fantasy football season. So it's a, <laughs> it's a good time, right? Yep, absolutely. So now at Stats Perform, you do both marketing and product. Talk to me a little bit about how those two fields overlap <laughs> and how much of the marketing you're doing inside your application versus outside. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into some of those. 
So it's interesting. I actually, when I first started talking to stats, I was just talking about the product role and they actually had us, they were advertising for a CMO separately. And in the course of the conversation I had with the CMO, one of the things that I was telling them was about how I felt if we can get product and marketing to really be much more synchronized as a team, that's where growth happens. And one of the biggest frustrations that I had at IBM was that these things were so separate. And, you know, if you're, if you're big in the area of growth, like I am, having those two things connect well and sync up is what is going to give you a ton of growth. So if marketing and product are on the same page, that's when you can get that growth explosion. If they're working really separately, I think it's a challenge. And so in the course of the conversations, he's like, well, that's a great idea. Let's just make you both. <laughs> and for me, it was great because over the, I would bounce in between product and marketing. There were aspects that I liked of both at IBM. And they would always say to me, like, what do you want to do, product or marketing? And I would just say yes, <laughs> you know, because... I liked both aspects of both. And when I found the whole area of growth, it was like, this is me, right? I don't really identify with either or I'm this hybrid between product and growth because I think that they need to come together for a product to be truly successful. And then in terms of how we're doing marketing today, we still have a fairly traditional approach. We're starting to push more things into the product but we're B to B to C today. So we're not doing as much in product as we want to be, but we are definitely have a, a goal to getting there. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because we have kind of similar tastes, so to speak, in, in what we like to do. I have, I ran marketing for a number of years for Pendo, then went off and was the evangelist for a product company. Uh, mm-hmm. and so in running a podcast for product people, right? So I've always delved on both product and marketing too. And it, it is interesting how those fields overlap, especially in areas like product marketing. And it's also interesting to think about like when those fields or when the people maybe in those executive positions haven't worked well together, problems they've caused, right? Or mm-hmm. opportunities that have been missed. Talk to me a little, a little bit about that. What have you seen when product and marketing people don't work together well? You know, what problems does it cause? So I want to actually go back to the first experience I had when I realized it was important and I was on the marketing side. And I was just, we were just starting to learn about design thinking and being user experience focused as the lead. And so for the first time in my IBM career, there were designers that were involved early on in the process of product. And I was on the marketing side. And I remember that having this argument with this designer about what the experience was for the product, right? And I'm thinking, hey, you're pushing in my space. I get the logo. I get the product page, you know? And then I remember once I started to open up my mind to what this designer was was showing me this lens of the product experience, starting with even how the logo looks, how the trial experience is, what the web page looks like. And my whole experience from start to beginning is the product. Then it was like the light bulb went off. And I think a lot of companies still keep things really separate. And as soon as you understand that the experience has everything to do with all different ways you touch and experience the product from the time you see the logo to the way you download the product to how well you can onboard within the product, then when you start to see that much more holistically, that's when the magic happens. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of people, especially in the past, have thought of product as something they sell. But 
today, especially with the internet and free trials and guided tours and all kinds of experiences that right. aren't even touched by people, it's, it's changed a lot. And Absolutely. products now that first touch point, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, like I said, I think that having design embedded into that process and seeing things from the lens of a user experience, it's just so, so opened my eyes to, to being a big believer in the product as an experience and all aspects of that experience and how it affects you as a client on, with that product. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. Now, where does design sit at, at Stats Perform? With me. <laughs> so I have design, product, innovation, and uh, marketing. So they all fit together to me very nicely. And that's all part of the big push and maybe the influence that I bring in to be more user experience focused and user experience led when it comes to product. We were much more sales and engineering focused in the past. And so I've definitely learned a ton from the design thinking experiences that I had at IBM and I've brought that forward here at Stats Performance. So I think having design included in all aspects of the experience, the visual experience, the product experience, everything is so important. And they will show you things. I remember doing heuristic analysis with my designer back in the IBM days and just being like, wow, I, I would have never seen that. I would have never noticed that. Like they look at the world with a different lens. Yeah. Now, it's great that design is part of your organization. Now, does, do you have a, a chief design lead or, a, you know, a VP of user experience or VP of design that reports to you? Or is it? Yeah, we have the, the head of design reports to me. And then, um, like I said, I have the head of innovation or chief innovation officer I have all the product portfolio executives and then my marketing executive. Okay. So design doesn't report in, say, through the product organization, reports directly to you. Correct. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I've seen that done in a couple of different ways where design's been part of the, you know, reporting to a CPO. In your case, since you're on both marketing and design, or sorry, both marketing and product, you don't have to worry about, you know, different designers being pulled on the marketing or product side. Right. We've really consolidated all our design expertise into one group. They may cross over and do marketing, visual work, and then they may do user research and they may do UI work, but they're all consolidated so that we have this more of a consistency around the user experience as it relates to Stats Perform and Stats Perform's products. Now, curious, do they spend time on both sides? Like, does a single person spend time both on product and on marketing? Some probably lean more towards the visual aspects of design, and so they do more marketing work. And then we have a team that we're building out on user research, and then a team that does a lot of the UI work with the engineering team. Okay, but they're not a specific resource for product. Like when I think about how design worked at Pendo until recently, we had designers that were working in the product group and designers working mm -hmm. in the marketing group, both of which you know reported to their appropriate, you know, C-level, you know, uh, executives. And in your case, you have a, one design lead. And then from there, you have the resources will work sometimes on product stuff, sometimes on marketing. Those some people might spend more time on one side of the house than others. So right. That's accurate? Right. Yep, that's accurate. Yep. Yeah, I, I like that. I like the, the idea of, of having people that see both aspects of design, both, you know, what's being done in the product itself and in marketing uh, to make sure there's a, a consistency, right? Oh, absolutely. And consistency of the experience and how you experience that brand and product is really important. Yeah, 100% agree. 
Well, let's jump back to IBM for a minute now. I saw that you were a chief digital officer at IBM and a couple different groups there over a couple mm-hmm. of years. Talk to me about that experience. What did the role entail? You know, what teams did you oversee? So interesting enough, that role was a part of the product organization, and it was really built to look at how we transform our business to be more digital or have more digital components to it. And so when I was in product, we were experimenting, if you will, with having a digital consumption model, and we had a very traditional sales model. And as we moved more and more into the SaaS space, we really needed to have a better, a stronger digital model across the business and data and AI. And so we interestingly started working with a product that was over 50 years old and probably a lot of people used it in college (laughs) and hadn't really changed too much, but it was a beloved product. and, And that was the one we started with really pushing to have a digital consumption model first. And it changed the trajectory of the growth of that product significantly. So it was really interesting. It was one of the things that really got me to understand the power of how of growth and how even changing the consumption model without changing the product can really help you hack growth in a product. Yeah, that is interesting. Can you give us any highlights of how changing that changed growth? Yeah, I mean, it, basically the product was relatively static, wasn't even growing at the rate of the marketplace, but it had a really loyal user base. And the biggest, if you read the verbatims on the NPSs, it wasn't that, even though the UI was really old. And so if you were looking at this from very traditional point of view, your tendency would be, in order for me to grow this product, I have to add new capability and change the UI. That would have been like any product person's reaction to it because it's old, it's 50, it looks 50. But in reality, if you really got underneath the covers, what was happening with this product was that the clients weren't complaining about the UI as much. Occasionally, there was a couple that were like, oh, this looks really old. But most were more complaining towards how hard it was to get. (laughs) You know, like, it's hard to get a trial. It's hard to get this product. It's hard to get updates. And so we thought, well, if we can change that, would we actually get growth? And it was amazing, like, the explosion of growth that happened with this product after that. And it became mostly bought digitally. It became almost like a B2C business for us, but it, it just opened up so much growth for this product that was way more than it would have if we would have continued on current course and speed. The funny thing is we went back and actually updated the UI and that gave us less of a growth burst than just changing the consumption model. So making it easier to find, making it easier to download, make it easier to onboard and make it easier to buy with us a, a SaaS pricing. So we went monthly instead of perpetual. Yeah, yeah. And this is part of the digital transformation you oversaw, correct? Yep. And then we kind of started to take that recipe and lay some foundations for how we wanted to digitally transform the products themselves. So we wanted to, there were some basic foundations. We wanted to have instrumentation and we wanted to have SaaS pricing and we wanted to make sure that pricing was the right fit. And we wanted to make sure that we had in-product onboarding. We wanted to make sure we did in-product campaigns. And we literally had these checklists. And then we started to build out the growth team. And that growth team would keep an eye on the, I would call them the vital signs of the products, like the revenue and the growth and the NPS signs and the conversion rates and retention rates, and all the things that would kind of tell us how we were doing with that product over time. Yeah, it's interesting how just changing the way someone can 
sign up, have that first mm-hmm. experience and, and buy a product can have that kind of dramatic growth in a, a product, like you said, that has been around for a long time. Yeah. I mean, if you look at another like complete non-software example of this, that was really inspirational to me, and I can tell you my Jägermeister story too, but Caterpillar, right? Caterpillar actually started to take their business digitally and so that you could actually rent heavy equipment by the hour, by the day, by the half day through an app. Like, and they grew from their business. I always joke around in the early days that my inspiration when I was looking for a mature product that if you change the consumption model, you would get growth. And I would use the example of Jägermeister that, you know, Jägermeister sat on the shelf with dust on it for years until they created the Jäger bomb. And when you, to me, it was a great story because Jägermeister was a complex product. It took a long time to make. It had like over 50 ingredients. They didn't think there was a problem with the taste, but they needed to inspire a new generation of people to drink it. And so they created the Jaeger bomb and then it, it resulted in being like 70% of the shots in pubs after that, yeah. after basically going nowhere. So again, another great example of changing the consumption model will actually help you hack growth. And it's a great example too of testing, you know, innovation, experimentation, right? Because mm-hmm. in Jaeger bomb, I mean, Jaegermeister with Jaeger bomb, what's the worst thing that happens? No one right. does the Jaeger bomb. And so you're like, oh, we'll roll back right. this experiment. It didn't work. But now when it does work, it, it changes the whole trajectory of the company. Absolutely. So talk to me a little about the importance of product management. You know, how, how do you evangelize product management and how did you do it at IBM? How do you do it at Stats Perform? So it's funny. When I, I remember years ago when I was still in the field and I was approached about becoming a product manager, my first reaction was like, no way. No one listens to those guys. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't have the level of credibility that IBM actually really focused on elevating the role of a product manager inside of IBM the last 10 years. And they basically evolved that role to the point of being a premier role inside of the organization. And I think that is really important to have somebody that's very high up, that recognizes and commits to being a product-led company. In fact, when I joined Stats Perform and I spoke with our CEO he, you know, he said over and over again, we need to be a product-led company in order to get the growth that we want to get. So I think that in the last probably five to 10 years, there's been this evolution around product that's really elevated it as a role that people want to do. And I think it can transform the trajectory of a company from a growth perspective that you're basically going to steer the company in a very specific direction with the products that you build. And I think that's actually pretty exciting. So yeah, it's, I think it's come a long way in the last few years and it's got a lot to do with the leadership within the companies. Yeah. I I think just industry-wide, you know, having been in product for quite a while, having been in the industry, selling software into product, doing product consulting, doing product for companies, it's amazing to see how it's changed over the last 20 years and and how the mentality and the importance of product management has risen inside of, you know, large technology companies and just technology organizations at traditional companies too. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think, you know, being product led to us means that we are the team that is taking the lead for where we want to take the company. 
right? Because we're going to build the products that the company is going to rally around and take to market and support and evolve. And that is a big deal. And I remember when I came into this organization, because we weren't product-led before that. And the first words that I said to the product team was, get ready to lead. Like, get ready. Because, you know, if your CEO, if our CEO is saying that we're going to be product-led, we got to be ready to step up. That is a big deal. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the notion and your thoughts on being product-led. So I think to me, starting off, it was really getting some discipline around the roadmap and the plans and the strategy being really transparent about those and getting everybody's buy-in around that, right? I mean, when I walked in, we we had roadmaps, but the biggest complaint I heard was that people didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know what direction we were going. So having that discipline, having that transparency, having the right tools to help us better track the data and information around product. I think all of that is just absolutely foundational. And then being much more data-driven around it. I mean, in, in IBM, we like I said, I would always tell the product managers, like, you should know your vital signs. You're the CEO of your product. People say that all the time. But to me, that meant like, you always need to be in touch with the data of your product and know it right? Because it's going to change by the day, especially in the SaaS business. So, you know, understanding the direction of what's happening with retention, with what's happening with your conversion rates, with what's going on with your pipeline, what's going on with your maintenance fees, right? What's going on with your NPS score? These are all things like if you're a doctor and you're evaluating a patient, you're looking at a chart, and you're looking at all this data and you're making some determination of what you need to do, what you want to diagnose, so to speak. So, I think it's about having that whole discipline and around how a product manager is elevated to set that direction, be transparent, be very vocal about it, get the organization rallying behind this vision. And that includes our engineering and development team, right? And I think it's opened up the world because we've spent more time explaining to them, this is the direction we want to go in and here's why, and here's our market opportunity, and here's our competition just having those conversations so that they understand the work that they're doing and the meaningful of this, of it to the company. It's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you work with both at IBM and at Stats Perform worked with a ton of data. So let's talk a little bit more about data. How does your team today filter through all the data they get? And you touched on some of the things, but what data metrics matter to them? Well, we don't have enough data yet. (laughs) We're still getting organized and disciplined around that. In fact, we're going back to even how we're capturing data and are in Salesforce and restructuring that so that we're capturing it the right way and we can slice and dice the data from the pipeline all the way through how we book revenue and how we report revenue in a way that makes sense, not just externally to our board and to the executives that care about us internally, but also to us as product managers. So we can make better decisions, right? We need to better understand the cost, the growth, the pipeline, just even the basic stuff that I think even at IBM in the early days, it was about getting that basic data and just flowing it to the product managers on a, on a more consistent basis so they get used to absorbing or consuming that data as a part of their everyday routine. You know, grab a cup of coffee and look at your data. I mean, that's, we joke around that you grab a cup of coffee and go open your Amplitude notebook and look at what's going on with your product. 
that's where we're going to be evolving to at Stats Perform as well. It's getting to the point where we understand usage and tracking that and doing more NPS surveys. And so even just getting the basics to be a reflex of what you do every day, right? And making it a part of your routine. So talk to me about the, the metrics that should matter to your product managers or your team in general. So I think the to us, the metrics that matter is growth, number of customers, retention, active usage. Those are some of the core things. We're a B to B to C. So sometimes it's a challenge for us to really get a view of all of that data because we're passing through some of our information. But I think we're going to get be- we're getting better at instrumenting things so we have a better view of active usage. We're going to get better at doing more NPS surveys instead of doing them less frequently. That to me is the core data that and the metrics that we need to get to rally around on a very consistent basis. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned retention because that's something I feel is very important for product teams to look at. Uh, and they often don't. Tell me, why do you think retention is important for product teams? Well, I, I think that <laughs> in a traditional sales and engineering-led company, people stop thinking once something's sold, right? But true growth really comes from whether the product is essential to that user, right? And any big growth company or any big growth product has come from that product being essential, from being something that, you know, that Sean Ellis always says the question that we you should ask is what would happen if I took this product away, which product managers just are scared to death to ask. But it helps you understand how important, how ingrained that product is. And I always talk to the team all the time about our goal is you want to make your product essential, right? And then you have to define what active usage means based on that. It could be that essential means they use it four times a day or four times a week or four times a month. It depends on the product. But understanding that active usage helps you understand how essential it is. And if you if your product is being sporadically used, it's either or you're not retaining clients over time, there could be an onboarding problem, there could be a pricing problem, but it's going to actually help you understand what's holding you back from growth. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. And it's interesting that you you couched it too as, as understanding product usage and what's essential for you. And a lot of people you get kind of preoccupied, like I want to make my users log in daily. And sometimes that makes sense and other times it doesn't. Yeah, it really depends on the product. And I think to understand retention rates, you also have to understand active usage because then you can see the where your active usage might be falling off and where you might have a retention problem. So the, those patterns kind of lead together. So let's talk about AI and machine learning because you've spent time there at IBM and I'm sure machine learning is something that has come up or is being used at Stats Perform too. How do you incorporate, how do you think about incorporating AI or machine learning into your product? And and what are some things you'd warn other product people against when thinking about machine learning or AI projects? (laughs) So we put a lot of AI machine learning into our products. We have one product, we've actually driven eight pretty complex models into in this past year. And I think creating the models, I mean, there's two parts that are really difficult when it comes to putting AI or or machine learning into product. One is it's always getting the data all in one place, right? Creating that data pipeline and training the model against it. But also the challenge of once that model is created 
fully productionalizing it inside of a product is harder than most people think. And the division that happens between the engineer who is used to putting a product into production as a part of the normal development process and an AI data scientist who's used to building a model and then handing it over to the engineering team, sometimes there's a gap there. So I think that that's been a pretty common challenge for a lot of companies. But if you understand going in how you can better get your AI and engineering teams to work together synchronously so that you can get all of those assets into production much faster and then maintain them, manage drift, and so on and so forth, I think it's you'll have a much easier time about it. So how you actually align your AI and engineering teams is really, really important because the building of the model itself is probably the easy part in comparison to actually get it consumable and productionalized inside of a product. Yeah, I think that those are good points. Now, how has COVID affected that? Are, do you have any interesting ways that you're using data or machine learning during the time of COVID to help your customers? Anything you can share there? I mean, during COVID for us, it seems like things never really stopped. <laughs> you know, we, we took time to actually do some cleanup around our data and engineering processes to make productionalizing AI much easier. So that's one thing we actually did do is brought in a bunch of tools and aligned, realigned our processes and took a look at the full line of, of the pipeline of actually building AI from data to production and how, where we could optimize it. And I, it's great because I think we've taken it down, I mean, from months and weeks to days. So we've gotten much better at it. So we use that time to actually fully optimize the process to productionalize our AI models because we had all these models and we just couldn't get them into production fast enough. It sounds like a good use of time. And you, you were telling me a marketing story too, like uh, that I, I have to ask about here. Talk to me about what you guys did on the marketing and content mm-hmm. side too, that I thought was a, a very compelling story. And, and it's turned into a new product, right? Yeah, it really has. We, uh, when everything stopped, the, you have to look at growth kind of differently, right? What does growth mean when sports stops and you're a sports tech company? And for us, it was really about maintaining relevance and engagement for our clients and and, uh, the people who love sports. And we are really good at data, but we're really good at storytelling with data, even better at storytelling with data than most people. So I challenged the team to start writing really interesting data-driven stories that were unique based on that data. And it was amazing, the stories that came out of the team and and everybody from marketing to our news and editorial team to engineering, like everybody jumped on the bandwagon to write these stories and they were really unique and they just really took off in social media. So we actually created a separate experience product, if you will, on our website called The Analyst, where we're posting all these stories. I think we've posted now over 200 stories. We started to see, well, maybe people actually want to subscribe and get this on a daily basis. And within a few weeks, we had over 2,000 subscribers. So there was a hunger for this type of content. And it actually ended up being more than 20% of the traffic to our site during a time when there was almost no sports being played, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is that is amazing. I mean, it's interesting how you can take you know opportunities to innovate, right? In this case, you're... You're taking time that you have because of the slowdown in sports that, that was uh, 
COVID related and using that to create content and innovation that turned into a product. And before you were talking about digital transformation, how just refining how you take a product to market, how you package it up, how people can test and try and buy it, you know, cycles into this growth. Both those stories are very impressive and inspiring. Thank you. It makes me think too about with the proprietary software, it's like, Maybe you can just go out there. If there's entrepreneurs out there looking for interesting things to do, find something that's, you know, delivered in an old school distribution model as far as software and just build the uh, SaaS version of it. Even if the functionality is the same, it might still be an interesting growth opportunity. Well, that's exactly what we did at IBM with the statistical software, which is it was just a traditional perpetual licensed software. And we create a SaaS model around it and change the consumption and boom, growth. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure there's industries and software packages out there for the uh, SaaS entrepreneurs to pick off, so to speak. Yeah, you just, you never know. That's why you have to keep, look at growth as like a treasure hunt. You just never know where you're going to find it. And then once you see that little hint to just double down and go after it, like what we did with the analyst, and it just takes you places. Yeah, see a little glimmer and start digging. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as we're getting towards the end of this podcast, and this has been a blast, I must say. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, trends you see coming up in the future in the, in the product world in particular, or, you know, even touch on design and innovation if you want to. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. Okay, yeah, so I, know, I, think- I opened it up there pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> With trends and product. I mean, I think there's still going to be more and more trend towards being data-driven, the, and the whole aspect of how growth is sort of changing or the, the concept of growth and growth hacking is evolving into more of the mainstream of the product manager. We had the, a growth product manager and then there's growth marketers. But I think that it's going to continue to be where that's going to be one person. And so we'll just look at product very differently than we have in the past. I think today there's still you'll still see many organizations that have those roles separately, including that's how we did it at IBM. It's probably how I'll start to introduce it here at Stats Perform, but eventually we'll want all the product managers to be growth managers in and of themselves, and that's how we'll approach product. I think that that will continue to be a trend. I mean, when I first started talking about growth hacking inside of IBM, people looked at me sideways, right? But now I think it's much more of an embraced method for people to look at products, especially as more and more is going towards the SaaS model. You have to look at it that way. You can't, traditional product management just isn't going to cut it sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right. What about your favorite product? My favorite product? I think like my latest favorite product, and your, I think your favorites depend on the relevance of the day. But so right now my favorite is the mirror because <laughs> uh, I am such a gadget geek. I get this from my dad, I think. But uh, to me, it was I didn't really have a desire to go back to the gym anytime soon, but I wanted to have a variety and I wanted to have more of a personalized feel of a workout. Like I wanted somebody who was going to be telling me what to do. And so the mirror, it just kind of filled all that need. I could have it at home. It's giving me the variety of just about everything I could think of when it comes to workouts. And I don't have to go back to the gym and I can do it whenever I want. And it's, it's a cool product. It really is just so innovative and cool. It's interesting how that whole tech-enabled 
workout industry has taken off, right? From mirror to tonal to Peloton, you know, you have your, your bike that's tech enabled. You can have your bikes that are tech enabled. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, And really exciting. I think too. Oh yeah. And I think I was totally torn between Peloton and and the mirror, but I think the thing that got me was the variety on the mirror is that I could do, you know, Pilates or bar or strength training or a boxing class all just with this one device. Whereas the Peloton, I think it had other programs, but it's, you know, if you're going to spend that much money on that bike thing, <laughs> then you might as well just do the bike. But uh, yeah, I think it's, again, it's, it's the relevance and the sign of the times of what's important and the fact that the, you know, people have some fear about going back into those environments in the COVID days and probably won't alleviate anytime soon. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you talk about that and you're talking about the different, you know, types of things you could do with the mirror. It made me think of my Oculus now. I found a boxing workout application there that you can actually just put it on and you're in the virtual world working out as a boxer. It was, it's pretty wild. It's very- Yeah, or you could travel via your Oculus. My daughter has one. She's a- yeah. uh, so I, you know, she'll, we'll put it on and we'll go to different places. Like I really wanted to go to Florence this year and I can't, but I can go via the Oculus and go inside the Medici palace and look around. And so it's kind of cool. I mean, it's not going to be a substitution for the real thing at some point, but it's, it's a nice way to do it. Meanwhile, when you, when you can't go anywhere. <laughs> that is, that is cool. Were you, are you able to do it with your daughter? Yeah, we were kind of swapping back and forth. She's like, where do you want to go see? I'm like, oh, let's go inside the Medici Palace in Florence. <laughs> just finished a book on those guys. <laughs> oh, cool. So, but you were sharing the same. I'm just curious. Yeah. I have my daughter at school now and I bought her an Oculus. <laughs> and well, so I'm like, we might move back in so we can share it. <laughs> yeah, well, we both have one now. So I'm kind of like, well, nice. can we share an experience like that museum and like a museum in Italy or something? That would be pretty wild. That's actually kind of a neat upgrade for that, right? Where you can make it more social. I think that's the biggest challenge with VR is that it's not a social thing, right? And that's why I think from a sports perspective, there's a challenge because most people look at sports as a social experience. So AR is probably more plausible than VR where I don't want to put on something that kind of keeps me from having a conversation with somebody else about that game. Yeah, and some they're trying to solve that problem. I was just curious how how well they've done where, you know, you can talk and interact with the other people that are in the same, you know, in shared space as yourself. I think it'll get there. You know, the weird thing, you know, not to, not to diverge too far on Oculus here at the end, but the weird thing I think is just the touch, right? Solving touch is going to be an essential part, even if it's just picking up objects, yeah, uh, that'll, that'll be a, a big part of, you know, that shared virtual space. But, uh, well, funny, funny that we've all been playing with the Oculus, too. I do <laughs> think it's going to, that whole VR and AR world is really going to change things over the next decade. I'm kind of excited to see what's going to come out of it myself. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting seeing what happens in the next six to 12 months that maybe COVID accelerates as a result of us not being able to do things we wanted to do, right? Yeah, I mean, you see that already with, you know, things like Shopify stock taking off as more people go build online stores because the retail workplaces haven't been there. You know, online education, you know, companies have been going like crazy, you know, tons of traffic there. You see remote health, all of that, you know, radically changing. So it's interesting to see what's already happened. And I agree, it's going to be interesting to see what continues to happen, even post-COVID. I can't imagine a retailer not having a strong online presence at this point. Oh, I know. Well, if you don't, do you even survive? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. 
Well, this has been awesome. One final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. Authentic, approachable, <laughs> and I like to think of myself as kind. Well, thank you, Nancy. This has been great. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you.